This week, I got to visit uh, my friend and fellow elder, Stan Schneider's work. And so he took me all around where he, he works. He shows me what they do. They, they build hospital furniture. I got to see Grant Metcalf, got to say hi to him. And as we were going around the different parts of, of that work, um, I was introduced to a lady, and, and her job is to check every single stitch uh, of everything that they sew. And if you make furniture, you, you make it out of like wood and plastic and metal, but then you put something over it, right? And so there's a lot of sewing. I saw a lot of people sewing. And this lady's job is to check every stitch. And she said something to me uh, that really stuck with me. And it was this. She says, I try not to miss anything, but staring at these endless threads, I get so used to them that every once in a while, I do miss something. It was her familiarity with her job, her familiarity with looking at billions of threads as she looks at it, that every once in a while it just slipped through. It was the familiarity of it. And, and as we look at this passage of Scripture today in John chapter 3, and if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, you can turn to John chapter 3 right now. It's the familiarity of this passage, it's the familiarity of the gospel that, friends, we cannot grow so familiar with the gospel, we cannot grow so familiar with this text or the words that Jesus says that, that we miss it, that, that we miss what's going on. And I'm afraid that uh, a lot of you are like myself growing up. If you ever heard the word gospel, you, you click off your brain because you say, well, I've already trusted in Jesus. I'm good on the whole gospel thing. So, so maybe you're even sitting there and you heard the word gospel and your brain just shut off. You're like, okay, it's one of those sermons. One of those sermons that I know we need to preach because other people need the gospel, but it's not necessarily for me. And so maybe you're a really good person and you think, um, well, I, I don't need this gospel, but I'm going to pray for other people who do need the gospel, but I'm just going to check out. I'm going to think about whatever else I'm going to do today, whether it's I'm you know, going to take a Sunday afternoon nap or go out to eat or whatever else. But friends, the gospel is the very foundation of our faith. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no Christian faith. And everything that we do, the, the holiness, the godliness that we're called to, is built upon the foundation of the gospel. But we grow so familiar with the gospel that we think, eh, we don't really need it. But we, we do need things like, I had a, a little girl come up to me last week. And she came up to me and, and she said, Pastor Chase, uh, could you preach a sermon about, you know how, yeah, we're called to, to love Jesus, but we're not called to just do it so other people are looking at us and thinking, oh, wow, you're so good. And, and, and we think that, okay, that is separated from the gospel, but it's not. You see, uh, what that little girl was describing was self-righteousness. And what the gospel does is the gospel tells us that our self-righteousness cannot save ourselves. Uh, the gospel informs us that we, in and of ourselves, are not good enough, no matter how good we look on the outside, and calls us to change. I didn't have the heart to tell the little girl that we preach expositionally and that uh, there's, you know, I, I mean, my next passage is picked for me for, for a while. But then it struck me that today in John chapter 3, we're going to be talking about a man's conversation with Jesus, and that man is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. 
And let me tell you what, friends, Pharisees were self-righteous. And so, little girl, (laughs) guess what? You get a sermon about self-righteousness. You get a sermon about not living out your faith just so people look at you, but the intentionality of what the gospel comes in and and changes. You see, uh, we are not called to, to practice our religion out in public so that God looks at us and says, oh, you're so good. But that's what Nicodemus and the Pharisees did. There was a, a second century, and so uh, second century, very close to when Nicodemus would have lived. The second century Jewish prayer uh, would be the uh, three blessings that a, a Jewish man was called to say each and every day. And it goes like this, and it came from the, the Pharisees. I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. I thank God I'm not a woman, and I thank God that I'm not a slave. Pharisees. We we know in Luke chapter 18 that the Pharisees praying, and right next to him is a man who's a sinner, and the sinner's bent down, and he's bawling his eyes out, and he's beating his chest. And what does the Pharisee say? Thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like this man. I'm afraid, friends, that we resemble more of Nicodemus than what we would really like to admit. We, after all, have our act together, while other people, they're a hot mess. But in God's providence, we have a message for us self-righteous people right here in John chapter 3. So let's look at this message, let's look at the text where we see that Jesus tells us, no, no, you must be born again. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would be with your word. Bring it down into our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So our big idea for this morning, after reading that text, is you must be born again. Sometimes Jesus just says it better, right? (laughs) Always says it better. You must be born again. So you might be sitting here today and you say, well, Chase, I'm born again. I'm good. I don't need to listen. But I think that if you do listen, Lord willing, the Lord will work on your heart like he did in my own heart this week as we look at Nicodemus. Now, some of you might also be thinking that, um, Chase, did you steal this from Billy Graham, right? Some of you are old enough to remember Billy Graham would say, you must be born again. Well, Billy Graham actually, he took that from Jesus. This message is 2,000 years old. It's an imperative. You must be born again. It's striking, though, because as we look at the text in verse 1, Nicodemus never asked a question. Nicodemus approaches Jesus, but Jesus knows what is in Nicodemus' heart. After all, we read last week in John 2, uh, 24 and 25, that Jesus did not entrust himself to the people who saw the signs, who saw the miracles that Jesus was performing at that Passover feast. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus, who is this guy? It's a weird name. No one is named Nicodemus anymore, right? But Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Uh, Pharisees were a group of people. Uh, They were both a religious sect and also a political one. And they would have had the Old Testament completely memorized or very close to it. They believed in keeping the law. They believed in keeping the law so much that they actually came up with a bunch of laws so that they wouldn't break God's laws. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler. Uh, He served in the Sanhedrin. It was a congress of Jewish people back in the day. He's a big deal. He's an older man. He's been doing this for a while. He's not only an older man, but he's a teacher He has been teaching Israel for years. And it is this Pharisee, ruler of the people, older man who is wise, who has kept the law, that he comes to Jesus at night. Now, why does he come at night? Well, it it could have been that Jesus was busy doing all those miracles and signs, and people were watching Jesus, and, and Jesus, after all, is there in Jerusalem during the Passover, and so there's, there's millions of people around, and it's hard to get one-on-one time with Jesus, so he comes to Jesus at night. It could have been that Nicodemus was embarrassed a little bit, because not everyone in the Sanhedrin believed that Jesus was the coming Messiah, or not everyone in the Pharisees believed that Jesus was the coming Messiah. After all, in John 5.18, just a few chapters that way, we see that the teachers of the law, that's the Pharisees, that's the Sanhedrin, they want to kill Jesus later on. Now, I will note this. Nicodemus is going to be a reoccurring character throughout John. We don't have time to cover all of his story today, but in the years to come, we'll see Nicodemus time and again. But Nicodemus, this night, comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, so he acknowledges someone as a teacher. For him, being a teacher, that's one of the highest honors. But Jesus is not a scholar, if you will. He's a country bumpkin from uh, Galilee. 
And he goes and he says, uh, you're a teacher, you're a scholar. That would be like someone with a PhD today saying that someone without even a bachelor's degree is a professor. That's a big deal. And, and, and so he's humbling himself in some sense, and he says, we know. So he's speaking on behalf of, of a group, maybe the Pharisees, may, maybe the Sanhedrin, maybe just his friends. But he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus comes as a righteous man before Jesus. After all, he was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He followed the rules. And from every vantage point of mankind, he was righteous. But herein is the problem. Man's standards, no matter how lofty, don't lead to salvation. So even though Nicodemus comes humbly and says, a rabbi, teacher, he's being respectful of Jesus, he comes to Jesus as a self-righteous man. He says, we know that you must be from God. We're the smart ones. We have our acts together. But friends, what's really in Nicodemus's heart, as Jesus knows what's in his heart, is a question, what must I do to be saved? So this is what Jesus answers. There's no question there, right? There's just a statement, you must be from God. And so Jesus answers him with a statement. And, and that's our question here. What must a good person do to be saved? What must a person who comes to church do to be saved? What must a good person who uh, spends time volunteering, what must they do to be saved? What must a good person who gives money to the poor or good causes, what must they do to be saved? What must a person who everyone would look at them and say, wow, you're a good person. What must they do to be saved? This is a core New Testament doctrine, what Jesus answers. You must be born again. Saved is a church lingo. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from hell. Saved from sin. It means to inherit new life, eternal life. It means to be regenerated, rebirthed. The New Testament talks about having a new creation. This is a core New Testament doctrine. And Jesus answers Nicodemus' statement, you must be from God, answering this exact question, what must a good person do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. As a good person, Nicodemus, he lived a righteous life. He lived a righteous life so that he could inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a, uh, a theological uh, masterpiece throughout Scripture. You, you see it in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God. You see it in the New Testament. But this is the only time you see it in John. In John's writings, he only talks about the kingdom right here. And Jesus says, right, truly, truly. And whenever he says truly, truly, that just means it's important. That's like me saying, listen up, right? And so truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so what is that kingdom? Well, the kingdom is God's redemptive rule and reign and authority over those redeemed by Jesus. But Nicodemus doesn't know that. 
He just knows that God one day is going to make all things new, and he wants to be a part of that kingdom. He wants to be a part of that eternal life. And so he's been living his best life. He's been keeping all the laws. And he says, we think you're from God? So, so tell me here, how can I achieve that kingdom status? And who wouldn't want to be in the kingdom? Because the kingdom is perfect. God is its ruler and judge and king. Uh, but Nicodemus looks at Jesus and he still is not certain. How can I really know that I'm going to be going to this place? But you'll notice something that in, in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know. That's plural, right? I'm not, a, I'm not a grammarian. I'm not an English teacher. But we is plural. But how does Jesus answer him? He says, you, singular, you must be born again. And we, we see that we as people put our identity in culture, in a larger culture, right? Uh, if you've been a part of the military, you, you say, oh, you know, I'm part of the Air Force, right? Scott, I saw at your house yesterday. Home is where the Air Force takes us, right? It, 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 you know, you, you collect that, that larger group. It's, it's us. Or athletic teams. And even if you're not on the athletic teams, like I'm a Pacers fan, unfortunately, and so I say, uh, we, the Pacers, uh, the NBA's out to get them. Um, but uh, we have businesses, and we say, oh, we. And we have families, and we say, we. But at the end of the day, we stand before God alone, bearing not the identity of a group, but bearing our own heart and soul before God. We will all stand before him. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is, you individually must be born again. Jesus says, if you do not, you will not see the kingdom. Now, this is shocking. This guy has been rattled. He has lived a righteous life. He's a leader of leaders. He's a teacher of Israel. He's kept the law and then some. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. So Nicodemus answers, he, he says, uh, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it's funny because the commentators, uh, they go back and forth. They say Nicodemus just has no idea what's going on, and so he reverts back to thinking that it's a physical birth, and that's possible. I think more, more than likely, Nicodemus is just so awestruck. He's like, uh, uh, what? He's tongue-tied. So he asks this question. He, just, he blurts it out. But maybe he's asking Jesus, how can an old dog learn new tricks? How can a man who's, who's been living a self-righteous life, how can he be born again? I think he's offended a little bit. But he should have known the scriptures. Right? He was a Pharisee after all. He had memorized the Old Testament. And Proverbs 30 verse 12 says this, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. That's how we live as self-righteous people. We think we have our act together. We are good to go. This is my standard and you have to meet it. But really when we, when we back up and we realize God is the standard. God's holiness is the standard. 
And so we can say, we are clean in our own eyes. That's not the case, friends. We are filth before a holy and righteous God. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. As you stand before God, you will not be righteous in and of yourself. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good people think you are. Before a holy and righteous God, you are not righteous. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And in 1 John 1.10, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the attitude of Nicodemus. And you say, okay, Chase, how do you know this is the attitude of Nicodemus? How do you know his attitude was saying, I have no sin, I'm righteous, because I know a testimony of another Pharisee. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 4, and 6, Paul gives this testimony about his life when he was a Pharisee. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Nicodemus would have had the same testimony as the Apostle Paul, other than he didn't persecute the church because the church didn't exist yet. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, it doesn't matter how righteous you think you are, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Friends, if you want eternal life, you must be right before God. You cannot be righteous in your own eyes. We think that salvation is by works, our works. The only thing we have right is this. Uh, Salvation is by works, but not our works. It's the works of God. It's the works of Christ. Nicodemus doesn't understand this. But we, as people who have been reading through John, know in John's intro, in John chapter 1, he says, starting in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Physically speaking, we did not control where we were born. I was born at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Lafayette, Indiana, and I had no control over that. Because as an IU fan, I would not want to be born in Lafayette. I had no control over my parents. I had no say of when I was born. You you see, this phrase, born again, also could be translated born from above. That God is the author of our salvation. He is the one who saves us and redeems us. It is not our work. Nicodemus doesn't understand that. So Jesus, in a new way, says in verse 5, 
Truly, truly. So, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying the same thing. He's, he's trying to show Nicodemus how you can inherit the kingdom, but this is a weird way of saying it. Let's be honest. What does this mean, water and the Spirit? Is it talking about baptism? Because some people think that it is talking about baptism, and I would say that uh, not exactly. Baptism is not mentioned in the context of this conversation. It's not mentioned until, uh, or it's not mentioned at all in John, unless it's about John the Baptist's baptism. And in which case, if it's talking about baptism, then it's talking about repentance, right? The water could represent repentance, that we must repent and believe the gospel. That is, after all, Jesus' gospel call his earliest gospel call in Matthew or Mark is this. Repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus could also be saying that if you want to be born again, you must be born physically. That could be the water. And then you must be born of the spirit. And that is the work of being born from heaven. Um, we also know in context from the rest of scripture that is by grace we are saved through faith, and that is not of works, so that no man, no man may boast. Uh, baptism is, is a work, a work of righteousness, but it cannot earn our salvation. Uh, also, uh, some people confuse this verse right here in saying that, well, Jesus is clearly talking that we are saved by baptism. And those people who think that we're saved by baptism would also say in John chapter 6, that Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, but Jesus is not instituting the Lord's Supper when he says you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He hadn't instituted that new covenant yet. So what Jesus is talking about here in context even of John 3 is saying you can't earn your salvation, Nicodemus. Why? Well, because his statement goes on. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, so we understand this. Um, flesh produces fleshly things, right? So uh, Kelsey and I are both in the flesh, and we had Hezekiah, Ellie, Emma, and Davy. We also know that in the flesh, we do fleshly things, bad things, Right? And so if we are living in the flesh, we will only do evil. If we're living in the spirit, we will do righteous things. The Apostle Paul gives further clarification of what Jesus is saying right here in Galatians 5. And if you have time, turn over there because I'm going to read Galatians 5, 16 through 24. It clearly lays out what Jesus is talking about, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, it's a familiar passage for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Don't we always want to sin? Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
You want to know what the flesh looks like? Here's an example. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not an all-inclusive list. There's a lot more. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that not what Jesus is talking about? He's saying, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is only going to produce fleshly things. So it doesn't matter how righteous you think you are, your righteousness is filthy rags compared to a holy God. Your, your righteousness, your self-righteousness is to lift up yourself. That's what legalism is. That's what Pharisees do. Pharisees put the imperative of the gospel before the indicative of the gospel. We must earn God's attention and affection, so we must do righteous things. But the indicative of the gospel is that God has already worked salvation through Christ. So that then, as Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Flesh produces flesh. But then back in Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, if you're born of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay. I think Jesus very much clears this up. If you are living for yourself, no matter if you're doing good works or bad works, it does not produce a righteousness. It does not produce the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is not indwelling you. But if you're born in the Spirit, your life is going to be exemplified by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This sounds great, but how can I be born of the Spirit? Well, Romans 8, 6 says, For the mindset of the flesh produces death, but the mindset of the Spirit produces life and peace. We want life. We want peace. But man, throughout church history, there's been very sinful answers of how we might be born again. You guys remember um, October 31st this last year? We had the world's longest church business meeting, but also we celebrated Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the castle church door of Wittenberg. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because there was people thinking that they could inherit the kingdom of God through works, others' works, that they could buy indulgences that were blessed by the Pope, and the Pope would say, yes, now you may inherit eternal life. And so you would go around and you would buy an indulgence for your mom, and your grandma, and your dad, and your, your siblings, and your kids. And you would say, I, I've spent this money, now my children, my family have inherited eternal life. That's not how we're born again. That's not how we are regenerated. That's not how we inherit eternal life. As I said before, some people think that baptism is a way that we inherit eternal life. But baptism, again, is a work. 
There is no works of the flesh that can inherit the kingdom of God. After all, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee who would have been all about works. And friends, that's what we do in legalism. How are you living right now? Because the fact of the matter is that little girl who talked to me last week and said, I need a sermon basically on self-righteousness. She's not alone. We think that we earn God's affections by our righteousness, by our good works, by our good deeds, by our thinking of others, by our kindness. But friends, that is not how we earn God's affections. That is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus explains This is how you inherit eternal life. This is how you inherit the kingdom. This is how you know the Lord. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And you go, thanks, Jesus, that clears everything up. No, it doesn't, does it? Because then I, I read on, and this is what I did this week. I literally, I read, I read verse 8. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is as clear as mud, right? And then Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And that's what I was asking the Lord, right? As I'm preparing the message, I'm like, uh, Lord, please give me wisdom. What does this mean? And then Jesus answers Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And I was like, Conviction. Are you not the pastor of a Boyd Baptist church and you do not understand these things? (laughs) Yes, Lord. (laughs) As I studied the text, and Jesus starts talking about the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a play on words. The Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit are one and the same. Pneuma or pneumas. And Jesus says, this is a good illustration of what the Spirit does. Because the wind out there, we don't know where the wind comes from. Yeah, we might say, okay, it came from the east, but where did it start? We don't know where the wind's going. Uh, Meteorologists think they know sometimes, but they don't. They take a good guess at it. But all the time, winds change. The weather changes. We expect... uh, We expected, actually, even yesterday, we expected rain showers in the afternoon. We never got them. Why? Because the wind changed. The clouds moved. We can't control the wind. The wind goes where where it wants, but uh, we can't even see the wind, but we see its effects. When the wind blows through the the leaves of trees, we see the, the leaves go like that. Sometimes my, my little daughter, Ellie, she doesn't weigh that much. And when there's a heavy wind, I see Ellie almost get lifted off the ground. (laughs) We see the effects of the wind. So too is the Spirit. We do not control the Spirit. We do not control the Spirit like some genie. You owe me this. I have three wishes. The Spirit goes where the Spirit wants. The Spirit moves how the Spirit wants. But we see its effects. We know that it's true. Because we just talked about the flesh produces flesh and and the spirit produces uh, spiritual things. Have you ever seen someone that's been grasped by the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Have you seen the radical transformation of their life that they were living for themselves, but they have been so gripped by the Spirit that the life that was once void of love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or gentleness or self-control, now their life is a mirror of those things. Have you ever seen a drunk get saved and turn away from the bottle and they can't explain it? They just go, God did something in my life. I'm not living for myself. Friends, we do not control the Spirit. We don't see the Spirit, but we know that the Spirit is there, and we know that the Spirit moves, and we know that the Spirit changes lives and has the power to change lives and has changed lives for thousands and thousands of years and continues doing so. And Nicodemus asked the question, how can these things be? In 1 Peter 1.12, we know that the angels long to look in to how these things can be. Salvation is a mystery. And yes, I've read a lot of systematic theologies. I know the order of salvation as we believe the scripture teaches us. I understand that there's different definitions. But at the end of the day, salvation is a mystery of God. And it comes from God. And that's, that's one of the things that uh, I see some people um, who say, you know what, well, I am of the elect. I am too, praise the Lord. But then, but then they, they get very prideful, like it's something that they did, that they earned their salvation. I am of the elect. But friends, we did nothing. If anything, if you know Christ, that should humble you. Salvation is an act from God. And so we should all ask ourselves, why would God ever have mercy and grace towards me? So how can a good person be saved? Well, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Listen up, truly, truly. I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. Now notice Jesus is talking Collectively, I believe that he's talking about Father, Son, and Spirit here. But you do not receive our testimony. And verse 12, Jesus turns to the plural of you. If I have told y'all earthly things and y'all do not believe, how can y'all believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus has been teaching to these teachers of the law. He's been proclaiming the gospel and they don't understand Men who had memorized the Old Testament, the Old Testament that proclaims the glory of the coming Messiah. Jesus has read out of Isaiah and said, behold, I'm right here. Jesus had zeal for his father's house. Jesus told the men last week that tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. That's the sign of Jonah. They missed it. They didn't understand how often in our own self-righteousness do we miss, friends, you can do nothing, nothing, nothing to be saved. It is by God's grace. You must be born again. Well, Chase, how can I be born again? How can I be born again? Well, I started off asking the question, how can a good person 
be saved? Because I think that was Nicodemus' original question. And Jesus whittles it down all the way to the last final verses of our section. And he says, whoever. He says, an open invitation. So, good news. Some of you go, I don't struggle with self-righteousness. I'm terrible. Well, guess what? The gospel is open to those who are self-righteous and those who know that they are unrighteous. Because Jesus tells Nicodemus this. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There is one person who has ever walked this earth, who has seen God face to face. That means that we are all on equal ground. What the gospel does, it comes in and it tells those of us who are self-righteous that you're not that good. That you have never seen God face to face, that you can save no one, not even yourself. And it provides open ground. And the people who are unrighteous, the sinners, they know they can't save themselves. They know they have a terrible lot. But there is one who has descended from God. That one who is descended from God is the Son of Man. And Jesus is echoing Daniel chapter 7. And he says, Nicodemus, you should know this passage. Because the Ancient of Days crowns one like the Son of Man. And every tribe and every tongue and every nation declares his glory and his worth. And Jesus says, I am that Son of Man. I am the one who has descended from heaven. The one who has come to save you. The one who, in him, and him alone, you can have eternal life. You can be born again. The one who remakes us. But how does he remake us? Then he echoes in verse 14 and 15 an obscure Old Testament passage. And Moses lifted up the serpent. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you're self-righteous. There's others here who are not self-righteous, but they know they are not righteous. Whoever This is whoever beholds the Son of Man. Now, what is he talking about here? It's Numbers 21. Do you guys remember that story, Numbers 21? It's a really weird story. Aaron, Moses' brother, dies. So they're still wandering around the wilderness, and all of a sudden, the people are grumbling and complaining against the Lord and Moses. And as they grumble and as they complain, the Lord says, fine. I'm going to send some poisonous snakes. They're going to bite you and kill you because you're complaining. So the poisonous or the fiery snakes come. They start biting the people. And they start dying. Many of them start dying. And then they repent. They go, oh, we've been wicked. Moses, we're sorry. Call out to God on our behalf. We need salvation. We've been bitten by the snake. And the Lord tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, stick it up on a staff in the middle of the camp, So that wherever the people were, all they had to do is simply look. Look at the serpent and they would be healed. Aren't snakes bad guys? Why why does God have Moses make a snake? Why doesn't he have him make like a lamb, right? Because we understand Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember in Genesis 3, 
There was the serpent. The serpent, the devil, causing Adam and Eve to sin. Mankind has been bit by the serpent with the poison of sin and rebellion against God. We sang in that last song, Christ became sin for us. It doesn't mean that Christ ever sinned, but he came down and he became fully man. He took on a nature like ours. He took on an image like ours. Bronze is a shiny, beautiful metal. And, and as Moses beat that shiny, beautiful metal, he, he beat it into the image of a snake. And he raised that snake up. The people just looking at the snake could be rescued from the bite of the fiery snakes. Friends, we have been bitten. All of humankind, all of mankind, whoever and all of us have been bit by sin, have been bit by the devil all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But what Jesus is saying, that, that Numbers 21 happened to point us to his salvation. Because Christ took on our flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Christ took on flesh and was lifted up. This is a prophecy of what Jesus is about to do. That Christ would be lifted up on the cross. It is his perfect life. It is his perfect will to save us through the atonement, the payment, the cross. And whoever, if you want to be born again, if you want to inherit eternal life, whoever wants to be saved must simply look. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who was lifted up for our sins. Nicodemus asked Jesus in his heart, what must I do for eternal life? What must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus has been telling him time and time again. And finally, he brings us back to Numbers 21. And he says, what must a self-righteous person do? The same as anyone. They must look to the cross. They must look to the Son of Man who will be lifted up. Believe. Trust. It is no action of yourself. It is a gift of God. To see that Jesus is who he said he is. That Jesus did truly die for you. Friends, what saves us from our self-righteousness? What saves us from our wickedness? Jesus. Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, looking to Christ. How can anyone be born again? Through Jesus.